welcome back or welcome to the On Coaching Podcast with Magnus and Marcus. I'm Steve Magnus, joined by my good friend, colleague, John Marcus. John, what's going on? Man, it never stops. The time to give the people what they want has come again. We don't stop, can't stop, won't stop. Let's give them what they want, Steve-O. All right. We got a great topic today, as always. Everything is great on this podcast. Hopefully, you uh, agree but before we get into that, uh, we've got some exciting new developments. Oh, new stuff is coming up. So, friends, buckle up. Sit down. Don't have anything in your mouth when you listen to this because you might spit out in shock. Super Running, the blog, the Super Running blog is about to be launched. What is Super Running? It's the thing I've been laboring on for about the past four or five months uh, building out. It is essentially a blog that is the old school blog format. So kind of like Twitter, but just a little bit better where it's just post on the science and practice of running faster, longer, and stronger. It'll be updated daily. It'll be pretty awesome. It launching Monday, December 21st. So first day of winter, but let that be a thing to look forward to for these winter months. It'll be awesome. Trust me. And it's just, it's pretty old school. It's pretty simple. There's going to be a lot of different uh, content on there, whether it's research articles, uh, whether it's training logs, whether it's, uh, or training weeks, I should say, from various athletes throughout the time of running history. Uh, you name it, it's going to be awesome. So hope you check it out. The uh, website address is superrunning, one word, dot net. All right. So, With that news, let's jump into today's topic, which is modifying workouts, making adjustments when training isn't going well. Now, this is something that they don't teach you in the coaching classes. No, and it happens all the time. (laughs) I mean, honestly, it's like basically a coach is only as good as their ability to modify something when shit hits the fan. (laughs) right no no one never no one ever tells you really um you know in in some of these courses well what happens if you write this brilliant workout and then you get into rep number one and it's like oh crap this is a disaster and that that happens quite frequently even on the elite level where you're just like Oh man, today is not our day. Something is off. What do we need to do? And I couldn't remember back in the early beginning stages of my coaching career, like having one of those workouts where it's just like, all right, I got to adjust something. Like, what am I going to adjust? And sometimes it's not even like a big major failure or, or anything like that. Like, oh my gosh, they can't hit the times. Sometimes... It's just you're seeing something and you're just like, this isn't this isn't what I expected. This isn't what I wanted. Like I've now gotta gotta make some uh, adjustments. Yeah, I mean, I'm with you that on that, Steve. When I was a young coach, I was often paralyzed by my planning. Meaning planning's so important. It's really critical. Like I obsess about planning um, and always finding better ways to plan that are in um, backed by science, backed by physiology, biology, physics, et cetera, and just how we adapt, right? But you can't be paralyzed by it. And that is the thing. You can't be so rigid that 
if the you know schedule calls for four by a mile plus four times 400, that no matter what, you're going to do that workout, uh, whether it's in sleet, snow, rain, humidity, you know, 100% um, humidity and just, you know, heat index of 120, whatever. Or if the athlete comes and is just not prepared for reasons, you know, either their own doing or beyond their own circumstance, you can't be so rigid as to just, you know, make it be a compliance activity. You have to figure out as a coach how to alter or modify a workout so that you can get the stimulus or stress you want that is necessary for the long-term development of this athlete, but also making sure that there is enough time for response or recovery as well. It, exactly. And I think, you know, if you look at this, <laughs> we get taught and we're ingrained so much with planning which I think is important, as you said. I mean, it's something that we both spend an enormous amount of time. But what happens is when you plan and when you invest that much time, you often get blinded and locked into the plan, right? There's that that old bias that I'm forgetting the name of it. I, I think it's a planning fallacy. <laughs> but but you 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 like have a hard time letting go and deviating from it. Right. And I think that is so uh, sacrosanct in like coaching culture that we almost have to actively train ourselves to to get out of that space and to be able and free ourselves to adjust. So if I'm looking at this, okay, making adjustments. If I'm a young coach, making adjustments means somehow giving myself the freedom and permission to step back and make those adjustments. If I'm an experienced older coach, I've most likely gone through the, you know, the trials and tribulations of figuring out, hey, I need to adjust on the fly here. And it's more about how do I do that in the best and most efficient ways for the workout that, you know, I have going on. So let's maybe unpack first how we get like that ability or develop that ability to and then we can unpack okay now that we feel okay adjusting like how do we modify workouts on the fly and maybe we can give some examples yeah sure steve i think for me it comes down to um a clear vision and clear understanding of two things one it's always 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 remember that we are caught in this world of stimulus and response, right? Stress and recovery. They are bedfellows, right? I mean, Stephen Brad's um, first book together, Peak Performance, essentially is that, right? You know, stress plus rest equals growth, or as I've been, you know, tweeting recently, hard work plus rest equals success. It's the same thing. So we forget sometimes that all this hard work or this, you know, effort is just, the first part of the equation without the proper response horizons or adaptation horizons, because that's where you get better is in the recuperation or rest period in between the stimulus, then all your hard work is essentially for naught or very little return on investment. So for me, I'm constantly thinking about what is being stressed, right? And the degree of stress of that, you know, for lack of a better word, 
we can call it a system or a bucket. And for, it comes down to four different ones in kind of how I orient and uh, frame this question. One is metabolic stress, then neurological stress, mechanical stress, so on the actual anatomy and phys- or of the body, and then psychological stress. So those four stressors are constantly at interplay all the time with any type of athletic training, right? Especially with running workouts. So you might have a workout that is really high metabolic stress that's really trying to kind of work on, let's say, uh, buffering lactate and a really high acidic environment, right? And then that can be compounded as a degree of difficulty by the um, psychological stress. The athlete might be coming in stressed out and worried about their um, their job, their uh, family, uh, you know, grades, what have you. So that can compound it. And then you have mechanical stress. The way you go about, say, acidosis training for myler might be really, really, really hard and fast, 200s, which has a high mechanical stress with on really short recovery in kind of these speed endurance blocks, you know, of two or three sets. And then there's that neurological stress, too, of actually creating force per step in a highly, uh, in, in an ever cascading up acidic environment. So you kind of see all these things interplay. And then as a coach, you have to step back and go, okay, when you're planning, all planning, all your training plan is, is just a manifestation of what you prioritize. And that's what we got to remember is for whatever event you're training an athlete for, the stress, the stimulus you're trying to accumulate as much as possible to provide a strong, robust, um, steady signal to create adaptations in that direction. So if you're training for a marathon, maybe someone's having a bad day and they are have a speed workout that's scheduled once every three weeks and it's 10 times 200 or 15 times 200. But for the marathon... We know that neurological component isn't the deciding factor, overwhelming deciding factor in efficacy of running a good marathon, running at lactate threshold, having, uh, you know, high fat max, using fatty acids as a predominantly um, high feeling substrate, being able to have high amounts of glycogen stored in your liver and muscles. Those are the predominating and prevailing factors in the marathon. So maybe that athlete is reporting, um, you know, some type of fatigue or uh, psychological stress. In that scenario, you can just cut the workout completely, right? Because it's like, well, we're just going to scrap this workout today. Maybe we'll get to that stimulus later. But you don't have an overwhelming amount of stimulus necessary from a neurological or motor development standpoint where you need to do all these 200s over and over and over again. And the inverse, too, with the marathoner is, let's say you have a lactate threshold run planned, and they're just feeling really awful and really crumbing and just not having it today, too. You can also potentially cut or scrap or move that session completely as well, depending on the phase you're in, because they're doing a lot of that work. And so missing one workout, missing five miles, eight miles, 30 minutes, 40 minutes block of work in this grand scheme of things, as long as they've been compliant before, um, might not have that big of an adverse impact as well. And so that's what I'm always balancing is what are the stressors and then how much volume or time duration of repeat exposure at this particular um, stress or stimulus does that athlete need to get better at their event and can we 
terminate a session or revise a session uh, based on what's happening uh, in real time that isn't going according to our, you know, kind of optimum bias or, uh, um, yeah, our, our optimism bias, perfect planning model. Yeah, you know, that is perfectly summed up into the same things that I look at is can we get the stimulus or stress out of this workout that we need? And if we can't, then it's time to do something else, right? Um, The one thing that I'd add in there is a wrinkle to consider is am I concerned about the internal load or the external load? Yes. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, the, the simplest way to look at this is, is it important to run at, let's say, a physiological load where the pace doesn't matter, or is the pace the thing that matters, right? So, what do I mean by this? Well, let's say I'm doing a workout where I am looking at race rhythm or race simulation or what have you. Well, in that case... The pace matters to a large degree because let's say I'm trying to run my 5K goal pace. If I'm off by, I don't know, if I'm trying to run five-minute pace and I'm running 515s, from a neuro neurological standpoint, from a matching the physiology to the rhythm, I'm not doing anything worthwhile because I'm not trying to run 515 pace, right, in the race. That tells me if I can't do it in practice, right, I'm not getting the desired goal of syncing up that physiology, that biomechanical rhythm, that neuromuscular approach. But on the other hand, if I'm doing, let's say, <laughs> a aerobic development day where I'm just trying to hang out at just slower than, we'll say, lactate threshold, you know, for a marker... And, you know, normally we'll say my lactate threshold kind of effort pace occurs at 520 pace. But today, because of fatigue, it occurs at 535 pace. Well, I might just go ahead and go after and say, hey, if it feels like it's at 535 pace, run that. Why? Because Mm -hmm. the internal load of running, let's say, just below lactate threshold with maybe two to three millimoles of lactate if we want to get sciencey and nerdy. Like that does the same thing physiologically regardless of the pace for that parameter I'm trying to improve because all I'm trying to do is spend a decent amount of time just below threshold so that my body kind of realizes, hey, you know what? We got to get a little bit better aerobically so the internal load matters more than the pace or the external load. So, taking that into consideration when you're making these adjustments is crucial because on some workouts, I'll sit there and be like, you know what? You're a little tired. You're a little fatigued. I know normally you'd run a little bit faster, but all we're concerned with is the internal load for the most part. So, just slow it down, go by effort, and just lock into that effort. But other days, that pace matters, you know? Mm -hmm. If I'm trying to run 400 meters or 400 repeats at mile pace to ingrain that, if I'm trying to run 60s and all I can run is 63s, then I'm going to adjust that workout because I'm not getting that neuromuscular like linkage to the physiology that I want. So, I'm ingraining kind of this, this bad pattern essentially. 
And this is why planning matters, right? Because you have to know as the coach what period of development you're in from a periodization standpoint to be able to make that decision. So if you're in an internal loading period, typically the base phase or like um, foundational fundamental period early on in the first half of the season, then it's really easier just to say, hey, we know you're fatigued, but do the work monkey, right? As long as there is no um, kind of mechanical stress that's impeding the athlete. If it's just, they just feel kind of flat, so to speak, or stressed out, right? So that's where, and a lot of times I think coaches, we get it, um, we invert priority distance running coaches. We tend to obsess way more about lactate threshold pace or aerobic development pace when that's a really wide tolerance and it can have wide fluctuations and the body really doesn't care. It just cares, you know, essentially like how, um, at what heartbeat, uh, per minute the heart's pumping. And then also too relative, what are the metabolites, uh, rate of development or, and clearing happening concurrently. Right. And that depending on terrain, depending on weather, depending on, you know, uh, rest in between sets, or if it's continuous run, that has a really high fluctuation. So for me, it's a really wide tolerance versus if you're in more of a, um, uh, a, the specific phase during your competitive cycle towards the end of the year, towards the end of your progression, uh, towards that paramount, um, event you're training for. Well, yeah, then pace really, really, really matters a lot because you're not trying to just go into that uh, you know, race, quote unquote, fit and just send in like these, uh, you know, biomarkers of how uh, good your plumbing is, so to speak, you're actually you're, you need to compete, you need to produce that force to run a certain speed over a certain distance, and be able to then depending on the types of tactics of that the nature of that race, either surge, fartlek, um, you know, have a, a long kick, long sustained drive, uh, be able to recover mid race if you go out really fast, like in like say a, a cross country championship, and then be able to long sustain drive to the finish. Right, so then it becomes really more important, and that's where as a coach, why we obsess about planning from a macro scale, so we know what period of development we're in for the athlete. So when we get into these micro day to day decisions we have to make, we have clear a clear compass and orientation of yes, this matters a lot right now, so I'm going to make the modifications in this direction, or no, this doesn't matter that much, so I'm going to make the modifications in another direction. And that's where having a really firm grasp on like sports science, uh, adaptation horizons, stress response horizons, uh, the phys- general physiology and direction of training is super critical so you can make these better modifications. Yeah, exactly. It's that distinction that that matters. Um, so, <laughs> you know, let's let's maybe dive into okay. Um, we've got this internal versus external load idea on when when that matters, and then I think the other thing that matters when we're looking at this and getting the like permission to is um, when when do we think or how should we modify versus how should we know when to pull the plug, which I know you talked about a little at the beginning, but I think this is this is worth um, diving into on specifics because to me, there are times when we can modify and still get the adaptation. And then there are times when 
you know what? We can't get that adaptation. Like, this is pointless. Let's come back the next day. Yeah. I, for me, it's a really clear line. Uh, maybe it's too clear, but it's essentially neurological versus uh, metabolic, right? So what I mean by that is if we're trying to stress the metabolism uh, and build some type of uh, aerobic component, whether it's aerobic power, aerobic capacity, general aerobic um, development, you know, that's pretty non-discriminant. That's just working hard for a sustained period of time. And hard, like I, you know, said before, typically has a wide tolerance depending on a, a lot of factors, both internal and external conditions. Neurological, on the other hand, that's skill, that's coordination, that's accuracy, right? And we know when the brain's fatigued, that, uh, and you're trying to do something that has a high, high degree of um, skill requirement, it's just not going to be as crisp. It's not going to be um, as accurate. And it's not going to actually translate to the motor learning and development you want. Because now we're talking about motor, motor development here. So the question is like, well, if I'm really fatigued, uh, here's a good example. Like say for basketball, there's studies that show like you shouldn't do a heavy lift and then shoot baskets immediately after the heavy lift your jump shot is off, right? The, the practice of trying to hit that jumper from the, you know, the corner or the elbow is not going to transfer because you've put yourself in a neurologically compromised state, pre-fatigued uh, to excessive degree. And so you're going to compensate and shoot jumpers and try to make them, but then you're going to get in the game. And then when you're uh, neurologically um, more recovered and rested into game time, the shot is actually long, right? Because the amount of power output you had to produce in the compromise state was a lot higher. And then the transfer in the game makes it so the accuracy goes way down. Now, if you wait six, seven hours, so you lift in the morning as common practice in the collegiate basketball world, right? Early morning lift and then practice, uh, skill practice in the afternoon, a lot of, and with a nap or a, a restorative state in between, a lot of that neurological um uh, kind of deflation or neurological compromise wears off because you know if you had time to recover and fatigue has gone away, and so now your ac your practice accuracy is higher. So that's the key, right? Is it something that de demands a high degree of accuracy, uh, which is going to be for me race pace specific work where you're like you said, see, so really trying to hit a rhythm, speed work where you're really concerned about the accuracy of the foot strike the um, swinging of the, the limbs and the coordination, the timing of that over and over and over again, that pure speed work to enhance that motor development um, versus if it's the propensity is it's more metabolic in nature where you're just trying to do hard work to get a uh, metabolic adaptation, then you can um, make revisions and adjustments and still get the benefit you want. But if the overwhelming theme of the workout or the overwhelming stimulus you want to enhance is neurological in nature, that's time to pull the plug, wait a day, wait two days. Or let's say what's most common is you as a young coach, we often give too little recovery for too, uh, uh, for too hard of work. Meaning we have this aerobic 
uh, development mindset constantly. And sometimes you have to give a lot of like recovery, like on max fly sprints or really fast 150s, three minutes, four minutes, because you're not trying to engage the metabolic system at all. You're trying to enhance the neurological system. And so that also too has to be a signal for how much rest in between um, sets or reps within a workout if the athlete starts to tie up or they start to get really um, discoordinated and have a high degree of deceleration and or they start to just run progressively slower and that's not the aim, right? You're trying to work on max speed, not speed endurance. Then you have to make that adjustment in the workout. Maybe not scrap the workout, but just say, oh, we need to give you more rest. We need to give you two extra minutes to let all the like negative metabolites clear out let your ATP resynthesize, let everything get back up onto par so we can then do another repeat bout and get that uh, motor learning we want. Yeah, you know, I I think it really all comes down to like, what is the goal? What is that adaptation you're after? And then that gives you that signal for, okay, how how in the world are we going to adjust? And I'm glad you brought up the, the rest period because I think that applies not only to, we have this hesitancy to, um, you know, <laughs> grind through and not give rest in workouts, which we can apply on the workout level. But if we zoom out on the weekly schedule level too, I think it's one of the reasons why we are hesitant to scrap days, right? Because we get in this pattern of, you know, depending on your coaching style, like Monday workout, Thursday workout, like you know, Saturday long run or whatever it is, this two to three workouts in the long run. And when something doesn't go well, a lot of times like we freak out because we're stuck in that pattern. Yeah. This, the seven day, yeah. Like manufactured pattern. Like (laughs) it's kind of one of the worst things, uh, you know, that's ever happened to us from a coaching development standpoint in running. (laughs) Right. It, yeah. I mean, it's interesting because you like you see this all the time. I mean, I remember when I was a younger coach um, visiting another country, actually talking to coach and, and they were like, well, on Monday we do tempo and on Wednesday we do, you know, long repeats on Friday. We do short repeats and Saturday we do long run. And that's the cycle. What's your cycle? And I'm like, wait, what I I don't have one like that. And it's not that necessarily it's, you know, was a good thing or a bad thing back then. But I think it, it spoke to me on how locked in we get on in on these cycles, you know. And what happens when we're looking at adjusting things is it becomes really difficult because a lot of times, especially if we're on the team side, is, well, if you need to adjust, you know, this group of athletes' workouts, well, now the whole, the whole like weekly schedule is quote unquote messed up and your choice is either, well, I'll just like scrap this and then we'll wait till the next workout comes around. Right. And we'll get them back on schedule, uh, back on cycle. And this doesn't always work well, right? Some people need recovery, more recovery after things. Some people like you need to adjust And then they'll need a longer term. You know, I remember working with a high school athlete way back in the day who then went on to, um, who's an Olympic trials qualifier in the marathon now. But, like, he kept, like, bonking mid-season on every season. So, what did we do? We just 
added more space between things. And lo and behold, he stopped like peeking in the middle and like was able to stay strong all the way through. And it was just a question of space, right? But especially when you're in high school and you're racing every week, you get locked into this like cycle of training. And I think that holds us back from adjusting too. So, you know, as I'm sitting here thinking through this and talking through this, I think, well, you know, we're talking about adjusting, but adjusting isn't just waiting until the next workout comes around. Sometimes it's like throwing the quote unquote cycle out the window until, you know, we're, we're ready to, you know, get into some normal pattern again. 100%. And there might not be a normal pattern. Like, uh, <laughs> I mean, I've had this before. Like, I'll go back to 2016 with Tara Welling, um, you know, when she did her first altitude block in early sp- spring there, you know, again, the gold altitude was just to amass volume of running as a stimulus overall, uh, while, you know, her red blood cell count went up, you know, to get a hypoxia benefit, you know, the hemoglobin, hemocrit, all that good stuff. We didn't do any hard work at altitude. She just ran it as much as she could stomach. That was kind of the directive, you know, with a kind of a minute and a max to every day, right? Like just run from this amount to this amount every day, twice a day. And also on these days, do some neurological, you know, focused work when fresh. So just basically strides and max sprints and some plyometrics and weightlifting stuff. And then when you get back from altitude, that's when we'll rip workouts, right? Well, no, it didn't happen. (laughs) What happened was like, she kind of had that post altitude like fatigue because for a month, she really put herself uh, under a lot of stress, cumulative stress that, you know, a series of acute stress became cumulative. So, um, you know, workouts were just really all over the spot, right? Or all over the place. There's nothing like that sunk up to plan. The goal was, again, to really in that period, raise her um, glycolytic capacity or lactate tolerance capacity at 5k. So that VO2 kind of range, that really hard, steady grinding work. So the goal was just to amass as much of that type of work as possible. So we had to just do it in pockets. Like the workout might have been call for four by a mile at five flat with, you know, two minutes recovery. And maybe throughout the the course of the the session, so the goal of that session was to like say, okay, we want to get, you know, 20 minutes of this kind of 5K rehearsal work done. But hit the first mile, blew up, you know, the last 400 and really started like, you know, going slow uh, on the second mile. So then what I do, give a little bit more recovery and then change it to Ks. Okay, now we'll try Ks. And then the cumulative fatigue started to compound and build. So then what I do, all right, we changed it to then uh, 800s. And then it was like towards 600s. The constantly, like say during that example of that session, what I was trying to balance was we want to get 20 minutes of rehearsal at 5K pace in. How is she feeling? How is she responding? So what's the cost benefit of continuing with more rest and then more uh, to get that 20 minutes in? Or do we scrap it completely, wait another day, 
do some other type of work. But the theme was amassing a lot of um, rehearsal or volume or stimulus during that month at 5K specific pace. So constantly throughout the workout, I was trying to say, what is the smallest possible package of work with the most appropriate amount of recovery that we can um, apply in this situation now that things aren't going as well before we reach that like pull the plug point where it's like, okay, there, you know, if we had to get down to quarters, then that would be my, my pull the plug point, right? Because that's just too small of a period to get any meaningful uh, duration of stimulus. But as we went down mile 12, K, eight, and then the last two reps were 600s, that was enough. And we were able to get the 20 minutes in, just not in the way we originally had thought, where it was just a nice, neat five-minute chunks, <laughs> right? And that's, I think, and that's the key is just knowing, um, too, that you can plan these, these beautiful sessions and have these anticipations, but you also, as a coach, have to respond to the athlete's needs in real times as they fluctuate throughout uh, a training uh, cycle in a, in a period of development. Yeah, it's really that kind of uh, responsiveness, right? Is you you, you kind of have to be aware of what you're trying to accomplish, but also what the athlete is telling you. And, it, you know, I... I think a lot of times in when we're looking at workouts, we think of, okay, what's the most we can push for this athlete to get the biggest bang for the buck in there? But sometimes when you're looking at adjusting, it's, okay, what's the bare minimum that I can do to get the stimulus that I need to, right? And that can come in terms of adjusting time or pace, distance, rest, etc. All these are at our our disposal and how we do so if we jump into that is up to what kind of stimulus and adaptation we're, we're getting after. And let me give you some examples. So, there with Tara, you gave an example. The goal was to run at 5k pace. So, we're saying, okay, the pace matters, external matters. So, knowing that, you sit there, okay, we can't do miles at it. Can we do case? Okay, we can do case. Well, you could have gone down the ladder and thought like, okay, we can't do case. Ks are too stressful. Like even with long rest, what about doing 400s with short rest or or 200s, right? And yes, the workout changes, but we can modify the rest a lot of times to get a similar thing. For example, one of my go-tos a lot of times is, hey, if we can't do miles or 12s or Ks and it's too stressful for whatever reason and I still want something at race pace, then we're going to do 400-meter repeats at 5K effort with 45 seconds rest, right? Short rest doesn't allow heart rate, VO2, et cetera, to come down that much, recover, but it does give this like psychological break as well where, you know, 400s at 5K pace isn't that fast, <laughs> Yeah, no, and it's just it's a it's a nice like short stop start. Like right? it's like yep, the athlete gets a, a mental a real quick mental reset more than anything. E- exactly, and over time you you know you can crank you can crank the numbers up pretty good and get a decent volume of rhythm at five k race pace. Right, it's no different with mile athletes. A lot of times, if we're if for whatever reason running sixty second quarters is too tough that day, well, guess what. It's 200s. Here we go. 
you know, or 800 meter pace guys, a lot of times I'll just cut them down to 150s or 120s or something like that, where it's like the, the joke is like, hey, anybody can run a 200, right, on pace um, for anything mile pace and up. Like, it's not that hard. Just get it done. Like, even if you're dead, you can do it. And it, it becomes that, okay, we're trying to get in. And I, I think this is one of the things that we, we've kind of touched on and hinted around is that it's this also the psychological component, too, that plays into this is a lot of times when you're adjusting, you're dealing with not only can they maybe are struggling physiologically, but that turns into psychologically like, oh my gosh, I'm off pace, I can't handle this, I'm spiraling. And your job as a coach is to manipulate the workout to make sure they don't spiral off the edge, right? So even in terms of like these internal load workouts, like let's say we have a, you know, a five mile tempo, Mm -hmm. you know? Sometimes it happens where athletes start and at mile one, they're like, I don't know if I can make it for four more miles, even if I'm adjusting the pace, right? They're just in that, this is a long way to hurt. So, what do you do? You turn it into like a modified fart lick, right? We're going to have some five-minute segments. We'll have some fours, some threes. We'll do short rest. Like, all I want you to do is add up to five miles or thereabouts. And guess what? Like taking that psychological stress off makes it where the athlete can get that workout in and get the accumulated load and stressor in, but in a way that doesn't put them into or dig them into a hole. Yeah. And that's, I think that hard work mentality, that digging the hole mentality is something we, you know, are victims of, or, you know, I, I know I have, um, been a victim of overemphasizing with running because in order to get development and adaptation and positive growth in running, it's a highly committed sport, right? You have to be already a highly committed personality. And sometimes that psychological component of being highly committed expresses itself in ways that aren't really that useful and beneficial to the athlete. Ergo, the cult of running mileage, the obsession about global mileage, right? In these arbitrary um, periods of one week. Sometimes like early on when aerobic development is the key, we know that more time spent on the feet uh, is paramount, right? To help make that happen. However, in later phases when internal load, or I mean, excuse me, when external load shifts to be the point of emphasis and you're about amassing amount of time at a specific pace to teach the body and the neurological system how to run this exact, you know, pace. It becomes very mathematical. And so global volume might not be as important if you've already done a lot of work because the training residuals on that are really high, right? It's 30 days where you have cessation of a lot of aerobic work for almost about 30 days, and you're not going to lose that much if you're doing other focused work, right? So this is kind of where the weekly volume um, argument goes out the window. I think one of the best ways to think about it is zoom out and go in two-week cycles. Like we, a lot of coaches were wedded to because we work in the scholastic system or we work in the, you know, the normal world where it's a seven-day work week. Uh, etc. We're wedded to that predictability. But if you go in the two-week cycle, what happens is you give yourself more space 
for recovery and you give yourself a little bit more space for variety, meaning not both weeks have to look exactly the same. So like one thing that Vin Lanata does really well is he does two week cycles. One week has three workouts. The other week has two workouts. So you get five workouts in a two week period, but the way the load is distributed and the way the load is executed varies just enough to uh, alleviate any kind of training monotony, but also too allows for predictability uh, in regular intervals on two week scales. And what it does nicely is essentially, you know, he, he factored that in so that his athletes race about once every two weeks. So you get three workouts on the non-race week, and then you get two workouts that are lighter in nature and less volume and a little bit more neurological or faster in the the race week. So, you know, a pattern would look like a Monday workout, a Thursday workout, and a Saturday workout on in the first week. And then in the second week, a Monday workout and a Wednesday workout and a Saturday race in the second week, right? But that Wednesday workout's pretty light, like it's like 10 times 200, right? It's, you know, maybe 10 times uh, 300. It's not crazy. It's not, you know, uh, insane amount of stress or stimulus or load that the athletes spend all this time recovering from. So when um, we want to modify, you know, training, sometimes the best thing as a coach is to step back and see if your overall structure needs to be modified for that athlete. So right? in a team setting, that can be hard because we want to put everyone on the same schedule. But unless everyone's running exactly the same amount, the same event, like they are, like cross country, it's a little bit more manageable because it's a team concept, a team event. But in track, where you got people uh, running, racing for and preparing for the mile, the 5K, the 10K, 800 all over the place, those all have very different demands with very different recovery horizons. Um, and we can't necessarily keep everyone nice and neat on the same workout schedule. So that's where the job gets a little bit more tricky as a coach. And you have to ask yourself, is the pattern of training or the system of, or the programming of training I have for this athlete appropriate right now? And it might not be even for the exact same type of athlete, but who's coming from a very um, different space. Uh, even in the same event category. So like this 800 meter runner who's a senior versus this 800 meter runner who is a soccer player trying out track for the first time, they might have very different patterns of workouts throughout the course of a training week and also over a season just because of also where they're starting from. And that's not necessarily a bad thing. Remember the goal, always, always, always stimulus and response and adaptation stimulus, stress, rest periods, a rebuilding period, and then, you know, uh, projection period into growth. And that's different for every athlete. And that's where a coach, you got to get super sensitive to that with who you're working with. Yeah, it, it, exactly. It's understanding those things and, and um, creating space, really. You know, one of the things that I've done in my, my kind of planning phase is intentionally put workouts in there that have a purpose, but are are there to give me more space between the quote quote unquote more important workouts. So it's almost like those workouts are in there so that if everything's going well, we're gonna do them. But if we deviate, these workouts 
are the first to go. They're things that I can just switch over and move somewhere else. And a lot of the times they're things like we're going to do some hill sprints or we're going to do some, uh, you know, rhythm 200s where we're just clicking off, you know, low 30s for guys for a, a while and some mile to 3K type pace for that. The rhythm workouts. And I'll include them in weeks where, you know, normally we might go, I don't know, Monday hard workout, Thursday hard workout, Saturday long run with something hard in that. And instead, we'll go Monday workout, Wednesday kind of spaced rhythm slash hill sprints, Friday workout. So there's bigger space between these two actual workouts. And sometimes I just throw them out the door because you know what? I can start a workout with some accelerations and get the same thing as I was going to do with hill sprints, right? And fit them somewhere else, but they're included in the planning phase to allow me to give this almost permission to like deviate and eliminate and create more space in there to have that flexibility versus what I did early in my career, which was have everything dialed in so that, you know, once we, once a workout was missed or didn't go our way, I'm sitting there like, oh my gosh, I have no room to fit this in. I can't do anything. I'm going to have to squeeze it in or change something. And, you know, you freak out because you're, you're, plan is dialed into perfection and you have nowhere nowhere else to go because if you change one thing like the whole thing goes out of whack well you bring up a really important point steve it's like not every workout has to be a uh, eyes popping out really hard i need we need this workout or else the whole recipe is compromised type session you got to have sometimes what I call those light and fluffy workouts where it's like, it looks like work, it smells like work, but you know what? It's not really work. And it's something like the athlete is, uh, can have an expectation that no, no matter what state, it's very likely I can complete this with ease, right? Um, I, and I think sometimes we coaches forget about that and get too excited about applying the the most rigorous, hardest stressful stimulus possible to get the biggest bang for your buck when actually like you know that uh rhythm training rhythm weekly rhythm you introduce where it's like monday very hard stimulus um saturday very hard stimulus wednesday fake stimulus essentially where it gives the athlete a little bit more time to fully absorb and respond and rebound from the training but psychologically it satisfies this work ethic need or high commitment need that a distance running athlete has to do something that feels like they're getting better but isn't compromising that recovery so yeah i mean that's a great point steve yeah it's it's we we really you know this is slight tangent but i think something worth hitting home on is like we really fall into this trap of the big workout is is what matters and what is important and to degree it it does but there's also these nuanced shades of gray in between a hard and easy run or workout that i think often we you know need to 
exploit and utilize in the sense that sometimes your workout shouldn't be that demanding or that tough. You can still get some sort of adaptation out of that. And it also gives you, I think, more freedom to play around with your schedule and what what you're doing. So, you know, just another tool in your arsenal if you if you struggle with this kind of planning fallacy, if you get locked in on your planning and you know that, well, guess what? Plan in some days where it's these, it's these moderate workouts where, hey, if things don't go to plan and you have to adjust, you're not locked in and freaking out. Yeah, and the more you know your athletes too, the more you'll know what they have a high sensitivity to and a low sensitivity to, right? So then, So some athletes like Myler's, if I schedule a really hard workout for them relative and then a long run the next day, some miners are just, you're just, you know, it's compounding the, st- the stress and they're just, you're just beating them in down, right? Versus say like 10K runners or mar- half marathoners, they have a really low stimulus or low sensitivity to kind of long aerobic work because they thrive off it. They like it. Right. So a hard workout followed by a long run for them is actually more restorative in nature because it's yielding something that's something uh, a day of high sensitivity and then low sensitivity. So those simple minded patterns of training, it kind of if you go back and you look at, say, Lydia versus Bowerman, right, you know, besides Peter Snell, who everyone agreed was was a freak of nature um, from an athleticism standpoint. The Lydiard methodology has proven really, really well in advancing uh, event categories that have a really high aerobic demand, 10K and up, versus like Bowerman's method, hard, easy, year-round, lower global volume year-round, but more frequency of neurological reps, 300s, 200s, you know, 600s throughout the course of years, moving from date pace to race pace uh, progression. I mean, Bowerman coached like 30 plus sub four minute milers in his uh, uh, in his brief period um, after the four minute mile was broken. I think it was like something like 16 years when not a lot of people run sub four minute mile, right? So it worked really well because he understood from a, the milers perspective that they need a lot of quality work, this anaerobic type work year round to be successful and not a lot of high volume work because they tried it. And it just left everyone exhausted, right? And he, Mauerman isn't known for, say, producing all these long distance, you know, 5K, 10K guys. Like you had Dillinger and a couple here and there. But he's mostly known as a miler coach versus Dillinger. When he took over at Oregon, right, he uh, recruited and worked and developed a lot more 5 and 10K and cross-country guys. He had a lot more success because what Dillinger do? He put more volume on his guys, right? So they ran more global uh, mileage throughout the year. And they also ran a, a lot more like threshold or aerobic, hard aerobic stuff throughout the year. And then Dillinger had more success with like the Rudy Chapas of the world and et cetera, running these faster, uh, the Bill McChesney's of the world, running these faster fives and tens. He wasn't known as much as a miler guru as Bowerman was, um, even though he did have success with, you know, people like Joaquin Cruz and what have you. So it's looking at that balance, right? And saying, what is also the sensitivity levels of the athlete you're working with? And as a coach, when you're writing out training, what I do is I try to project and tell the athlete, okay, hey, look, you're going to feel like this for a little while. And this is what it's going to be like. Like a good example um, is actually like, say, just this week with my wife, right? 
She's coming back after a long period of seesaw training where it's like, do some training, life circumstances or injury or illness gets in the way, take time off. And it's just really inconsistent training. Now she's been training steadily for 10, uh, you know, 11 weeks. She just did her highest volume, global volume week um, in about a year at 70, 75 miles. And going into, she has Wednesday, uh, Saturday workout scheduled because of her professional uh, career and life demand. So the Wednesday workout is this modulation workout, which is essentially uh, one and a half miles steady at, in, we're in, in an internal loading period, steady at kind of this um, ha- uh, 15K threshold race pace, and then 800 meter float at a marathon pace, and just doing that for like seven miles, right? Then it's also followed up with some aerobic power uh, development activities of fast quarters at what feels like date 5k pace right and it's off track it's just on you know on a road um you know on a, a measured period for 400 meters and it's like i have no expectation about how fast that is just just you know the whole goal is external or internal 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 load so she has really high sensitivity to that aerobic power development stuff right so we do the first thing she's good at which is more first that threshold work that's really uh important to her development um, she's, you know, kind of trying to train up to be in good 10K to half marathon shape for when all that stuff comes back, hopefully this spring and early summer. Um, but I know that aerobic power development stuff is key, but she has a high sensitivity to it. So it's going to leave her really fatigued. And that's why the following day, Thursday, she has a complete day off, nothing. Because I anticipate, I know she's going to be shot. And sure enough, she wakes up and on her kind of like whoop, uh, recovery monitoring uh, app and device. Her recovery is in the red, which is like really low because her HRV is really small and it is like two thirds below what it, the normal average is, right? Really high, demonstrates it was a really, really high stimulus or stress the previous day. So that anticipating that that following day, that Thursday needs to be completely nothing, a total don't like just chill out day. Her heart rate was still elevated throughout the whole course of the day, right? So the load, uh, the strain that, like, say, the app interpreted was a 14-day strain, even though she did nothing but just work um, on office visits from her computer all day, sitting in a chair, not moving much, you know, going for, like, a little 10-minute walk at lunch, nothing. But throughout the course of her day, her body was still digesting that stress, right? Um, And then today, a Friday, she wakes up in a much better state. Now she's almost, um, her HRV doubled from what it was the day before. So she's on track to recover. And today's run is a 30 minute shakeout jog because the anticipation was she's going to have these two days where she's working after this tough workout. And she's going to need all, all that time, that whole 48 hour window to get ready to do another workout on Saturday. But I know her really well. I've been coaching her for almost a decade. I could anticipate this, um, and you know, rightfully so. And had it she been, you know, a little less uh, or a little bit more recovered, that would have been just been a, a really nice. Oh, that's really interesting. <laughs> but you know, that as a coach, you also during the workout when you're making modifications, you also have to anticipate what is the sensitivity level of this athlete, and that was a real time example. And then how to make those projections about how long it's going to take them to recover 
from the modification or lack of modification you're making in that workout between that and the next planned intense session. And that's, um, again, kind of that quote unquote coach's eye that no one can learn from uh, any type of like training or course or textbook, but you only can learn like interacting with people in real time. Yep. It is, it is uh, pretty simple. It is prediction, right? We are, we are predicting um, what it's like and what the athlete we think is going to perform like and how they're going, what kind of stress the athlete needs to adapt. But like anything, if our prediction is off, we have to be able to come back, use that information and adjust. And I think that's kind of what this entire podcast is about is when we see a prediction area, do we put our hands over our ears and just be like, la, 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 like, we didn't see this. I don't know what you're talking about, which, again, is a common tactic in the the greater world. Or do we do the smart thing, which is say, you know what? This is off. This is off for a reason. Like, we need to adjust, see what adjustments, like, you know, what that brings and figure out a a route either through or around or whatever way, whatever path we can find, given the, the information coming back to us. And that's where I think, again, you mentioned it, I'll reiterate it, that coach's eye is so important. And as a coach, you know, we're sitting here. You know, John and I have mentioned times like, well, early in our career, we did this and now we do this. Why did that improve? Not necessarily through some textbook or some learning, but it improved via like improving our ability to predict and adapt by going through these things as coaches, taking note, learning from it and seeing what what matters when we're saying, hey, we need to adjust. Yeah, I think. You're spot on, Steve. It's important to know the science because the science, and it's also important to know the practice because they lend evidence to your ability to predict with more accuracy. However, everyone is a special snowflake. They're all unique. So there's there's subtle nuances and differences person to person. And that's also impacted a lot by their environmental stress, right? How much are they sleeping? How regularly are they sleeping? Uh, each, uh, you know, hydration, uh, nutrition, uh, general demands and loads outside of training that's placed on them. Those things are need to be factored in with equal import to how stressful is the actual training stimulus day to day on a micro scale, week to week on a meso scale, month to month on a macro scale. So that's the tough thing as a coach, right? And this is why any generic training plan you pick up probably won't work. And if you're brand new to running, it'll probably work for six weeks if you can survive it. But unless you tailor that planning to that, the realities that that athlete's living in, it probably won't be sustainable because they're going to hit different hiccup points because a lot of these generic plans have these generic interpretations of stress and recovery. Some athletes I I work with, they have really fast recovery horizons for certain types of work. So we can do these medium dig cycles where it's like work out every other day for a week 
or 10 day period, right? And they can get away with it. Other athletes have really high sensitivity and need more prolonged bouts of recovery and might be, you know, work out every three days or every, even every four days with kind of like a um, fake workout in between. And this is, you know, what they meant when you read about, say, Kenny Moore versus Prefontaine with the hard easy principle that Bowerman made famous. Kenny Moore was a higher sensitive athlete. He needed more recovery between his difficult, stressful stimulus. Prefontaine was a lower sensitivity. He could work out hard every other day and his quote unquote recovery could be a four to eight mile run at 530 pace. And for him, that, that was the right recipe, uh, for his success. The problem is, is when you start to copy and paste what other people did, you know, and you don't think about it critically for the person you're dealing with, that's where we get in trouble. And I think the modifications are key. The best coaches and the coaches who consistently have success aren't just the best planners, but also are the best modifiers because the principles on what they plan their training are um, clear to them. And so they can make those modifications in real time at the drop of a hat when an athlete is expressing um, a unplanned uh, stress or uh, unplanned, um, uh, like, as I like to say, should hit the fan moment where you're just like, okay, I got to, we got to come up with something brand new here because this is not going to work out today. Those are the people who tend to get results because unfortunately humans, we are not predictable. We are very unpredictable creatures even though we do have a lot of science and learning and practice behind us to give us a clear sense of pattern of direction. But it's just like the weather, man. You can't say with certainty what it's going to be like day to day, but you can kind of be in the ballpark and guess based off historical trends and also previous trends. Yep. You know, I, I think to sum it up, it's this is know what sort of adaptation you're after understand what sort of stimulus you need to get there. Um, build in space if you're planning for adjustments because they're going to happen. You're almost proactively making sure that you're um, not going to fall into this planning bias or fallacy, right? <laughs> and then understand the athletes you're working with so that you know their different sensitivities to different workouts what they can tolerate better, what might put them into a hole that is harder to get out of. And those inform your decisions on when you're going to adjust, how you're going to adjust. And perhaps most importantly is then, you know, take note, review, and see if, if what you did worked and if what you did got them out of that hole or if pushing forward was the right decision because over time having those experiences, understanding what, what's going on and what the effect is will help you increase your kind of repertoire to, to pull from so that you know with different styles and types of athletes when it's best to adjust and in what direction to do so. Yeah, Steve, you're right. All training is an experiment, right? That's all training is. It's really an experiment. You have a theory or a guess. And then you say, okay, we're going to do this. And I think this will happen. And then the evidence actually gives you feedback on if your theory or guess was right or wrong. <laughs> I mean, and it's that simple. And we have 
a lot of other uh, guesses and theories available to us, whether through research or practice of coaches past and things Steve and I share in this workout. But everyone's situation is different. Everyone's going to have different results with how their experimentations. And you just need to, as a coach, keep a pulse on that, a note on that, and continue to do what you do um, by listening to this podcast, by um, engaging with different continuing education opportunities like what Steve and I offer or what other people offer. It's, you know, really important just to be a lifelong learner. I can't stress that enough. Um, and, you know, the more you learn and the, the longer you learn, the better you'll get at coaching and the better your athletes will be. Exactly. Never stop learning, whatever direction that is. So, um, thank you for being, uh, you know, using this opportunity, this hour to learn with us. We hope you enjoy it. Uh, don't forget to check out super better and superrunning.net super steve superrunning.net i can't i can't believe it steve always I, making those I gaps. this is what happens <laughs> super running luckily you have a good editor for when you write books it, so people don't get to see the it's sloppy true copies that i am <laughs> the world's worst editor because i am not the detail oriented person i am the big picture t- idea type person so I know. I always get those drafts and I read them and go, you know, it's not my job to it's, copy it's it. It's not. Just looking, looking at concepts. Does this all make sense? You got to know what you're good at. It's <laughs> just like in coaching. You know, you know what you're good at. And when you're not good at something, you find others to help fulfill those roles because that's what it's all about. We can't all be perfect at everything. Amen to that, brother. Amen right. to that. And until next time, listeners, thanks a lot. Uh, we hope you enjoy um, keep on listening.